0: Hey there, welcome to the Mint Measure Podcast, where we cover everything related to attribution, incrementality, and marketing analytics. Here we go. Welcome to this week's episode of the Mint Measure Podcast. Today, we're lucky enough to be interviewing Sam Leung, who is the VP of Search and Ad Tech at the Aber Group. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to this point, VP at a prominent agency?
1: Yeah, it's... It's been a long time. I'll stop with that. So I've been in the industry for almost 15 years now. My background primarily is actually technology. I did my undergrad at the University of Waterloo in a degree field that I honestly can't really work in anymore. It's a niche field called bioinformatics, where it's effectively genomics, proteomics, and and being able to do a lot of the really interesting stuff that we're starting to hear about now, where we're now able to start thinking about protein folding in a very interesting way because of AI and machine learning. But left all of that behind. And I decided that coding every day really isn't for me. Kind of left, did a couple of stints here and there, worked for the university a little bit, did a little bit of consulting at Deloitte years and years ago, and I didn't really like that. Ended up being in a position where I just wanted to try something different. Looked at the agency space, looked at really what, what was missing in the industry right now. Now I, I felt like as digital marketing was starting to pick up a little bit more near the end of the 2000s, having some somebody with a tech background could be really beneficial. So started applying to a bunch of places and ended up picking an internship, of all things. And I started my career at the ABR Group as an intern. And over the last decade and a half, it's it's been a very fun and very interesting and fruitful endeavor where I went from being an intern to, to being a VP at this point.
2: Yeah. It's oftentimes really hard to be acknowledged and to be rewarded and promoted internally. There's the classic adage, you have to move out to move up. What have been things that have helped you to keep growing and learning, but also have the agency see that and promote you from within?
1: I'll start with the first half, which really is developing an an innate sense of curiosity and an, an innate sense of wanting to solve problems. So coming from a technology background, that's already been there. When you work in technology, all you're really doing at the end of the day is solving problems with code and be it using AI, using statistics, using just even basic SQL queries. All you're doing is solving a problem. And it's looking at a problem in a number of different lights. And that's where that curiosity comes in and starting to think about what different ways can I solve this problem from? Can I approach it from That's a very base level brute force, just can I just sit there and just with a piece of paper and a pencil, just hammer this out? Or is this something that I need to spend some time in developing systems and developing real infrastructure to solve it? And then just bringing all the different pieces together is what's fascinating to me. It's about looking at the problems and solving them in disparate ways and almost in, in a way that maybe challenges what you've done in the past and because you're starting to solve those problems you're able to start taking those solutions and showcasing what you've been able to do and that i think is a big part of developing your career is not necessarily just doing the work but really going out and and grading it around a little bit more often than not especially from a developer mindset sometimes it's just the code works therefore it's good but that shouldn't be the be-all and end-all, right? You need to really go out there and say, this is good code because of X, because of Y, because it's more efficient, because it solves a business problem. And, and I do look around and not necessarily my cohort anymore because we're all <laughs> in our 40s and in the senior position, but looking at more junior developers and people coming fresh out of the school doesn't have to be a developer could be an intern could be a coordinator at our agency sometimes you need to really go out there and just tell them what you've done
2: yeah i think this is one of the things that is oftentimes uncomfortable for people is like demonstrating why you're good at your job And it's really easy to feel like an imposter syndrome or like you're bragging or like you're (laughs) boasting and no one like wants to hear anybody sing their own praises for two hours. But sometimes as subject matter experts and whether this is internally or even as an agency to a client, right, sometimes you have to be like, okay, here's the plan. This is so awesome. You just need to understand. Let me give you a little peek of why this is so good. Oh, we did this thing that was creative and it did this, and it solved in this unique way. And so one of the things that I always tell people, it sounds like you're advising something similar is like you have to bring people along for the journey. If I just tried to show people the end result of an analysis and be like, you should allocate thirty percent more here, they can be like, why? And so that's the right thing. But why? But if I can explain, I looked at this and I did this, and it looks like this, and then this relates to this, right? Just bringing them along, their degree of comprehension increases, but also their appreciation for the work that you've done and the expertise that you're bringing to the table also increases.
1: Oh, absolutely. And this is where it's almost like going back to school and having the professor or the teacher say, show your work. Yes. We've gotten to the point where as employees, as people in the workforce, we just want the end result. And we don't appreciate showing your work to your point, bringing people along and really showcasing... Sometimes how hard your job actually is because it is hard. Everybody's job is hard because I certainly can't do something like the folks at IBM or Google or all those folks doing are doing from a generative AI perspective, but I can appreciate it because I'm looking at it and I'm understanding what they're doing. But for a lot of people who are just using something like chat GPT, it's oh, that's cool without really getting how important something like this is.
2: Is there like a Dunning-Kruger, but for appreciation of work where like the more, you know, a teeny tiny bit, you don't really appreciate it. But if you understand a little bit more, your appreciation really deepens.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the big things I stress to people coming new into the industry, especially coming out of a four-year degree or a college degree. They There's always a sense of trying to focus and be very narrow in your focus and go deep. Yes, that's important, but you also need to be broad as well and bring, not just broad, but also bring in those perspectives from your background, be it your heritage, be it your interest, be it just something that you do on the side. Bring those perspectives in because that can enrich what you do. By coming in with a new way of solving a problem, a new way of explaining something even.
2: Yeah. And sometimes knowing, they say a mile wide and an inch deep, right? You like want to go deep on some stuff. I can think about my own career and understanding a little bit about email marketing and SEO. Even though like I have been a performance marketing specialist, understanding these other things, it comes together in a way that allows me to do the job differently or ideally better. You know, the old expression, jack of all trades, master of none. Yep. (laughs) Do you know the rest of the expression?
1: I don't actually.
2: All right, so the full expression is Jack of all trades, master of none, but better than a master of one. Which is interesting because the rest of the expression completely changes its meaning. And this expression is in its full form, advocating to be a generalist and to understand a lot of different things versus only understanding one thing. And I think that's great advice for anybody who's starting a job or a career, or even if you're an agency person, like you might never touch email marketing, but it might be worth trying to see if you can get a hold of a couple of your clients and have someone over there teach you a little bit or connect with their SEO guy and understand what they're doing because all of that information is adjacent and it helps you to do your job better.
1: A hundred percent. And as you move up in your career, you are going to be forced to take a much broader perspective on the world. And even though my title is search and ad tech, I can talk about digital display. I can talk about video. I can talk about out of home. If you push me hard enough, I can even try to pretend to talk about print.
2: Yeah. Look, I see the magazine. Yeah. We can buy an ad there, right? Yeah.
1: Why not? How hard could it possibly be? Don't answer that.
0: Branching more into advertising-specific kind of stuff, what does your day-to-day look like?
1: <laughs> that's such a loaded question at this point in my career. Though I think the answer still is very much the same. It, my day-to-day has never been the same. And that's 15 years of not the same day-to-day. And a lot of it is because it's a lot of just... Problem-solving, that really is the crux of my job, is to solve problems in different ways, sometimes with technology, sometimes through collaboration, sometimes by, by through management. And it's what makes myself being in an agency so much more invigorating than if I were on a client side? or even platform side, where the types of problems you're solving tend to be very different. Loaded question, appreciate the question, (laughs) terrible (laughs) answer.
2: No, it's actually (laughs) a great answer because I think when I was on the agency side, working across different clients and solving different problems was one of the things I love because there's never a dull moment. You're not usually solving the same problem twice. And even if it is the same problem, there's other factors that make it interesting. And yeah, I think solving problems is... What you do, especially as a leader, right? You have to solve people problems. You have to solve client problems. You have to solve technology problems. And it's just, which items are going to catch fire today? And which ones do I need to put out first? It's that
1: old adage, it flows up. And when you're at the manager, VP, president, CEO level, all you're doing is deciding which shit I need to focus on.
2: Yes. Yeah. And which ones are actually important, which ones aren't important and pulling in the right people and resources to be able to solve this.
1: Absolutely. And that's probably, I guess if we were to broaden every statement, last 15 years of solving problems, the problems are, have changed and they've just gotten more interesting over time, either because it's our own fault for causing problems and we don't do that very often, but it's also just the industry always changing, always evolving. And everybody in the industry over the last two, three years are still grasping and wrestling with this idea of cookies going away. That's still the big problem that the industry still needs to solve. Because based on my read of the situation, I think Google's actually going to do it next year.
2: I don't (laughs) It's because they're getting antitrusted. And this lawsuit is about divesting their publisher technology from everything else. So right now, Google can kill the third-party cookie because they don't need any additional identifiers to go from their pub side and the inventory to match that with the user. But what happens when the pub side is a completely different entity? Google will require some way of understanding who that person is and connecting it to their own internal ID. And if it's not third-party cookies, Cookies. which very well could not be, there must be something. Google has one of the biggest like demand side like platforms there's no way that like that just goes without an identifier so maybe it goes away maybe it's replaced with something else but there will have to be an identifier
0: sam i would love oh, to absolutely. hear. absolutely yeah what are the reasons you think google is going to pull the trigger next year
2: i there's
1: two things and it's very weak signals and i i do want to touch on the little bit of around antitrust because i think there's the opposing force on on privacy legislation mm-hmm. so comes down to which one wins, but from where I'm sitting, we're seeing Google starting to deprecate a number of functionalities and features from the Google ads platform. So similar users is going away pretty much in the next three months. We're seeing Google pulling back on a number of different products and services. Not necessarily because of cookies, but I think a lot of it is just to help simplify their stack. Stuff like Google surveys, which we love, I wish they kept it around, but It is what it is. Same thing with Google Optimize. Really wish they kept that around past the end of this year, but we'll make do. Attribution models.
2: Attribution models, condensing everything into PMAX. Do you think that is primarily motivated by Google trying to improve its offering or because Google is trying to capture more dollars with less transparency?
1: Why not both?
2: It's for, for sure. No, it's definitely I the second.
1: It's definitely, the, it's definitely a second. So I'll start with there. <laughs> uh, but it is one of those questions of why not both? Because if we're seeing more push from the legislative slide from privacy perspective, that may be the bigger impetus than antitrust. I'm not saying antitrust isn't important. I think between what's sexy and hot, I think the privacy legislation is one that's going to take the front seat more so than antitrust.
2: I I would agree with that. I think that there's enough bipartisan concern that like something has to be done. The only hope that I have that antitrust happens first is that it's all
1: Do you want antitrust to actually come first? I do. Okay.
2: I do.
0: Sometimes so- Scott just wants to see the chaos. I do want to say that's fair
1: watching the world burn is a lot of fun, especially when you've got just piles of cash and you just toss a torch into it. But I, I
2: yeah, I think from a hot topic, I think you're right. Privacy is a hotter topic to the average person. I think to our congressional delegates in DC. There's a lot of focus on big tech and the manipulation of this or that or the, right? So I think that just by nature of it, like already being in progress and there's like strong bipartisan support around that, there's too much actual malfeasance and like actual provable like malfeasance that I think it, let me put it this way, it would be shocking if Google didn't get antitrusted. And what happens for Google in this moment will probably happen to Facebook because Facebook yeah. is intrinsically tied into all these Google things and some of the priorities and nefarious the things there. And then from a privacy standpoint, there are five states that have legislation and yes. it's either in effect now or coming to effect in July 1. And like, we're doing things, but there's a good enough solution for the like ad tech ecosystem, which is these things called MSPA, multi-state service provider agreement, something like that. But to get something national requires a degree of collaboration that, look, let's be <laughs> real. We can raise our debt ceiling and not default on everything. There's not another whisper on Capitol Hill. And I think that the legislation for privacy has to mirror GDPR or CPA, one of those. And there's, there's just a lot between where we are today and getting something like that's stable and codified across all 50 states and with that comes what are like the what are the digital rights that we have as human beings do we have a right to our own data do we have a right to be forgotten do we have a right to x y and z things as living in a digital era and so i think that part has to be part of any privacy legislation to define these inherited inalienable Mm -hmm. rights and i think that's just a much bigger mouth to try and chew on than like
1: Antitrust. I agree. Antitrust is easier. The, and let's be honest, the EU will go after Google before the US will, because it's the EU. But I think this is where looking at it from a more global perspective has pushed me towards the privacy first bef- over antitrust first. Interesting, Because there is outside of the EU, we're here in Canada, we're really looking at our privacy legislation. We're not the only ones. I'm I don't want to say anything that I'm less sure about, but I'm sure there are a half dozen, couple of dozen countries that they're looking at very similar legislation. And I think those will try to push Google into a space, the same with Facebook and Meta, into a space where privacy needs to happen irrespective
0: of antitrust. So Sam, I guess let's get, let's keep on this trend of being nerdy about things. What do you think are the most exciting things happening in ad tech?
1: Oh, geez. Let's not talk about AI. No, I guess we have to talk about AI. <laughs> yeah. I think AI is very interesting in that it, it has a lot of promise. It also has a lot of problems. And we're only scratching the surface as to what that could mean. As, and it's not even from a, what does search look like? What does SEO look like? I think with better machine learning and better AI, we can start to see real competition around social media, around search, around publishers, because it is that disruptive. And I think we might see further fragmentation on the publisher space, which depending on who you talk to is a good or bad thing, but in the same vein, we're going to be in a place where, like we just talked about from an antitrust perspective, it will rattle the incumbents to the extent where antitrust may happen, but it may not be as much of a tipping point versus having so many more competitors who are able to do what, what the platforms can do.
0: Yeah. So are you, help me connect the dots. How does AI turn into more publisher inventory or more publishers? Is it just the barrier to entry to create stuff like that is so much lower?
1: Absolutely, I think it is the barrier to entry. Where suddenly it's not necessarily about spinning new content through AI means, though I, there's tons of people just churning out AI-generated content till the cows come home. But it's also being able to hone in on that content that people are consuming and being able to to, to really optimize that content faster. So that's going to be what's going to likely happen from the publisher standpoint. I think from a search standpoint, we're seeing Microsoft really stepping in and we can have huge conversations around what that could mean from an SEO or paid search standpoint. The answer is maybe we don't know yet, but, but it could also mean that there are, could be new entrants in the search space. So Google's bread and butter may not be as safe them. And that's really a big part of that code red that Google surfaced over December, January after ChatGPT really took off. So I think there's a lot of really interesting disruptions that could happen because of AI. And I think it's a matter of identifying those opportunities to see what that could mean, because we are really at the very beginning
2: of all of this. And it's one of those things that like As you start to work with the AI and as you start to see what's possible, your mind just expands and you're like, whoa, it's overwhelming. Like the direction this could go, the possibilities, like what could be done. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for human beings to have an AI for long enough to poke it in a few directions and see what does and doesn't work and try and get to a point where we know like how to really use it or wield it effectively.
1: Absolutely. And have it be culturally accepted because it's, I see AI just like any tool we've had over the past 150 years, where a new technology comes in, everybody's scared of it. Then we start to really understand how best to use it. What are the limitations? Will it take away jobs? Will jobs evolve? And what's different about this iteration is that A, there's more people, but B, it's also faster and more ubiquitous it'll be fascinating if we have the same conversation five years from now where all of us will be and what all of us will be doing because there's three of us on this call i don't i'm not even certain any of our jobs will be the same even remotely the same i think it'll be really different i
2: can guarantee that much yeah (laughs) because like we're already seeing our work change so like we mentioned at the top of the call that like We've been using the AI to develop some new capabilities. We don't have to go hire a mathematician anymore. I have a perfect mathematician who has access to all the materials and will never like mistake a formula. So, what does that mean? And it means in terms of time and in cost and of what we are choosing to build versus not build, like it's already like changing the day to day. And so, yeah, I'm sure you've seen this out there. There's like, People on LinkedIn are like, AI won't replace you. People using AI will replace you. And I'm a little bit over that phrase, but like that, I really think that that's the direction that we're going. Do you really need 30 people to handle all these things or could it be done with 10 people in an AI?
1: I think there's definitely that opportunity, though one thing that I do want to caveat about AI as it currently stands is it is only as good as our collective sum of knowledge. Yes. And if... And it will get us from point A to point B a lot faster than we did five years ago, two years ago. Take your pick. What if we don't know where B is? And that's where I think a lot of our interesting jobs will go to is discovering what B is and starting to lay down groundwork to get us there. Because there's still tons about everything around us that we don't fully understand. And even beyond looking into the cosmos, there's still a lot of things we don't understand about our biology. We don't understand about sociology, culture, and all of that primary research still needs to happen so that AI can actually be helpful from that regard. But if all we do is stop now and not pursue that next step of what's interesting and what's new and what's truly innovative, then this is all we've got.
2: Right.
0: Now that we've addressed the elephant in the room, that's AI, is there anything else that's worth mentioning that's like exciting going on in ad tech from your perspective?
1: What scares me most, and I'll tie interesting and scary, is the reliance on modeling. It's not to say that I'm skeptical of all models, especially when it comes to understanding just that A lead to B. but. Well, as we talked about from cookie perspective, the less deterministic data we have, the more we will have to start relying on modeling. And there's some really interesting work happening in this space. I just feel like it's too black box.
2: Yeah. And like. It's interesting that you say this. This is, this seems to be a very contrary opinion. You are one of the few people that we've talked to who are like pumping the brakes on models
0: because everyone as, else is yeah. super excited right. about models. So
2: that's party cookie is Everyone's like, return to MMM, it's the, right? And like, people have just used that. It almost feels like it's been used as a reason to say, we have to go with the models. There's an adage in statistics, which is all models are wrong, but some are useful. And it just seems like people have really leaned is oh, we have to use them up. There's no other choice. There's no other option. We have to use them up. And so would love to understand from your standpoint, like transparency, obviously understanding or seeing complex formulas of how things were done. Does it, is it necessarily enough to give the confidence? Is there something from your end or in your mind that would help you feel more excited about models or to feel good about those?
1: Oh, I'm going to turn into such a skeptic now. I said I wasn't a skeptic before, but I might have to walk that back. I think with anything probabilistic, we do need a substantial volume of data to feel comfortable with the output. And as much as I think there's tons of organizations out there with the data that could make a model work, we work with a lot of clients who don't fundamentally. And even based on just basic statistics, I don't feel confident that any probabilistic model would be able to provide that level of certainty to say, A did lead to B, or this ad drove that sale. It is, I think one of the key problems with ad tech is that ad tech is meant for people with data who are willing to invest in a lot of marketing. It is a rich person's game for lack of a better term. And for those of us on a much smaller scale, that you're going to get locked out from a lot of the riches that tech is supposed to promise everybody.
2: Right. So what's the antidote to this? If the problem is it requires lots of data, most brands don't have that. Small guys in particular aren't going to have that. It's costly for some of those models, which you did like explain all of the challenges there. Like what's the antidote?
1: I was going to go full snark and just say AI, but no, that's <laughs> not it. That I think is the problem that I'm not sure there is a full antidote. Not that I'm currently seeing right now. Anyway,
2: it's let's take these piece by piece. I think data size, right? Not small brands don't necessarily have the data size. There's probably a way for company who's doing some analysis to bring some of that to the table, or perhaps the antidote would be an analysis method that isn't so reliant on enormous data sets.
1: I think if we can find and agree on an analysis method without the need for large data sets, I think most people would be happy with that. I also, as a corollary, feel like digital marketing got the industry addicted to data and really locked a lot of the true creativity and a lot of the intuition behind whether or not something worked. I'm not saying go back to nineties. I'm not saying go back to the eighties, but I think a big part of what we do need to think a little bit more about is it's also okay to be less certain. And that is a really tough pill to swallow after. All of us in the industry have been so addicted to data for the last 20 years, 20 plus years. And it's not a good antidote, but it is, I think, a good grew the weakening. Right.
2: Yeah, I think this idea of being okay with less certainty is so critical to marketing because whether you are talking to a client and trying to explain, like, this is the media budget allocation. Like, you might not be certain we didn't run an MMM on this. <laughs> But trust me, we've done our work. We know our stuff. We're professionals, right? And so I think us feeling comfortable with that lack of certainty or in the sales process of convincing your client or winning a new business pitch, right? There's only so much that you can explain and have that knowledge around. I found a lot of success by saying, hey, these are things that we don't know. And just like being transparent with that and saying, hey, we don't know if this is like actually the right audience. We think it is, but like BD or right, stuff like that. But imagine
1: you having to say that without any of the data to back you up. And I feel like that's where a lot of advertisers, especially fresh ones nowadays, feel like they're caught in a loop where they feel so compelled that I need the data to know that I'm right. And that's the cycle that we need to really break.
2: Yeah. And I definitely understand that. I think I don't want to... (laughs) <laughs> say that <laughs> certainty is the luxury of bigger brands, but like to some extent, right? If I have $10,000 a month in ad spend or a hundred can be a lot more sure about what's working with my hundred thousand dollar spend. Than
1: so a hundred percent. And, but even then large brands don't always have certainty either. True. Especially when we start looking at Bud Light. <laughs> still over the <laughs> last month. You couldn't foresee the reaction there is no certainty around when you ask something in the wild even if you know what the cpms or cpas or even who you're working with what the reaction to that will be and that's that x factor that really is something that you can't factor into a lot of the models
2: right so how does that get factored into our day-to-day lives as agency people how do we how yeah how do we that?
1: I, I'm always of the opinion that all creative should be passed through a 13 year old boy. If the 13 year old boy giggles, you're probably doing something wrong.
2: Yep. You know, what's so (laughs) funny is I just thought this last week about this campaign that we ran for the Tennessee Department of Transportation. And one of the things that they did was no drinking and driving. And they did coasters like at bars, but they did a dozen different designs. And one of them was like slightly tasteless. And somebody at a bar made a big stink about it and got on social. Right. And like, it ended up becoming the whole thing. The creative director lost his job, which I don't think should have happened. The agency lost the account. I don't think that should have happened. But yeah, to your point, like 13 year of voice, make a great filter. And yeah, you just never know how things are going to transpire. Yeah. That campaign was great for eight weeks until it wasn't. And then like, it's
1: a great idea. Like. I think coasters in bars as a way to, to tone down drunk driving. Great idea. It's always the execution. It's always the creative.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. At least we got off the Bud Light topic. At yeah, least we, we did. We, <laughs> uh, we made a small, <laughs> detour, we got right back on track.
2: You've talked about a number of really interesting points, Sam, and I appreciate that you are dissenting on some things like the place of models. That just really resonates with me. I'd love to like, maybe end with some advice, like as you were early in your career, what was some of the best advice that you received? And then follow up with that will be like, what is the advice that you try to give to people, whether they're coming into your team or into the agency to help set them up for success?
1: I have to really dig deep into that one. I think one of the best pieces of the advice is actually just get involved In, in It resonates to me so much more now as we move out of the pandemic, depending on where you are in the world, you're still in the pandemic or you're completely out of the pandemic. I think getting involved is something that we all missed over the last couple of years. And it could take in whatever form. It could be getting involved in an industry organization. It could be getting involved and being really deep in your own company and really stepping up and stepping in and working with other people on your team, it could also just mean exploring something new, uh, get involved with something else to, to expand your horizons. It's a lot of your career, I find, is what you put in. And I think for those of us who are starting in our careers, when the onus through college is to be so heads down, get the work done, get grades, in pass, past, you miss a lot of things that's happening around you. So that's the one piece of advice that, that I got that's really resonated with me back then and even today. And I would say the same thing to my juniors now is don't be afraid, explore, be interested, and also know your limits. We only have. 24 hours a day, I'm hoping most of them will spend six to to nine hours sleeping. We get a few less hours than the 24 allotted to us, but also know that you can't just work all the time. You, You can't just spend your life looking at models. You can't spend your life coding. You can't spend your life optimizing or thinking of the next big idea. Invest in yourself, spend time just being you.
2: I I love that advice. And I like that you're ending on a very human note. And we are humans that have interests and needs and things that are going to make us happy besides work. And work matters. But it's not the only thing that matters. And I think there was a lot of waking up during the pandemic to be like, what am I doing? Am I working 10 hours a day so I can go to sleep and then wait? Or no, like this isn't what I want. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I can say from my own experience that When I take the time to invest in myself and do things that make me, Scott, the person happy, then Scott, the work dude is also happier and is in a better
1: And the quality of work is there. People notice that you're happy at work and a lot of good things happen from there. Yeah,
2: certainly. Well, Sam Sage advice. I think that's a great place for us to go ahead and wrap this up. So yeah, thanks so much for everything. Love cheering your POVs.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Oh, and if you're looking for a better way to prove that your campaigns are working and find the best ways to optimize spend, we invented bimodal attribution so you can see exactly how ad spend turns into results and make more of your campaigns. You can learn more about PMA at mintmeasure.com. See you next time.